not many people can make a living from being an adventurer. They might dream about it, but Alastair Humphreys is doing it. I'm Simon Willis, and I'm extremely lucky to get this interview. Alistair's been invited to do lots of radio shows and write articles right now because of his expertise in finding adventures close to home. He says he's turned them all down, except this one, which makes what happens in the middle of our interview excruciatingly embarrassing. You'll know what I mean when you hear it. Just a quick summary, Alistair spent more than four years cycling around the world. He has walked across southern India, rode across the Atlantic Ocean, run six marathons through the Sahara, completed a crossing of Iceland, bussed through Spain, and participated in an expedition to the Arctic close to the magnetic North Pole. National Geographic made him an Adventurer of the Year, and he's written 12 books, quite a few of which I've read. Micro Adventures is the one which resonated with me. Alistair started his adventuring with big global challenges, and work to small local ones, exactly the opposite of what most people do. So is he living his life backwards? I get quite bored with interviews when everyone asks boring questions. So I once decided to interview myself for my blog. And my first question to myself was, how does it feel that your life peaked age 29 and has been downhill ever since? Okay, so my thesis holds water. Fair enough. And I've asked a question that other people would have. You've asked yourself. So that's a really bad start. Yeah, you, now your question was good. And there's there's truth to it. And it's a interesting thing when you do the biggest. I mean, even at the time, when I was cycling around the world, I knew then that I would never almost by definition, never do anything that big ever again. And then therefore life after that has to become a thing of you can't just be trying to chase bigger and bigger and bigger, because that just leads to disaster and explosion. So you have to think a little bit differently about there's more to adventure than pure bigness and um and it's actually i quite appreciate that the problems with starting big is it's forced me to be more thoughtful about adventure since then and i sort of appreciate that on my good days and hopefully we're going to get to that thoughtfulness because i think that's one of the most interesting things that you offer as an adventurer and as a speaker and i've watched your talks online and and they're fantastic the the one of your the, the, the adventure that really struck me in the things you have done though is the one you did in the empty quarter uh partly because you people have rode oceans before people have crossed ice caps people have cycled the world before but i kind of wondered where this had come from it's got a great narrative with the wilfred thessinger which is a fantastic name and don't you wish you were called that but but where it's not so much where did the idea come from i suppose but how did that capture you why was it that adventure said to you i want you to do me what captured me about the empty quarter desert was reading Wilfred Thesiger when I was a impressionable young student and had not done any adventures of note and I read Wilfred Thesiger's book which was called The Life of My Choice which seemed like a pretty good career path and life path um, so I loved his autobiography um, and I loved that desert expedition for all the reasons that anyone has it's poetic it's epic it's hardcore it's ascetic it's masochistic um, and beautifully written. So it had always captured my imagination as a as a sort of benchmark big journey to do with Wilfred Thesiger up there on a list of fairly tough 
<laughs> epic alpha males that I I put as my um, inadvertent role models for quite a few years. So it was always a, a sort of testing point and a some sort of comparison point that I wanted to go and do that desert trip. Plus, I've always, I guess, growing up in green, woolly, crowded, busy little England, I've always been intrigued by the emptiness of desert. So, so that aspect of the trip appealed to me as well. Because that's the antithesis. I suppose that almost you've got the elements there, haven't you? You've got the ice of the polar stuff you've done in, in Greenland, you've got the sea, and then you've got the desert. You've got almost those four... Uh, I've never hadn't really thought that through. Really. I'm not sure there was a question going there in my mind, but I, but you've you've, co you've covered all the bases. Yeah, well, I, I had quite a busy year in 2012. I began the year about January, February time by rowing across the Atlantic, which was very hot, very wet, and very wobbly and quite miserable. And then it sounded in... bloody awful. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> yeah, um, I, or perhaps I was just not cut out for it. Uh, then. Um, late springtime I was on the Greenland ice cap which was big and empty and freezing cold and then winter time I was uh, in the empty water which was big and empty and boiling hot and what really struck me about those three trips in 2012 was how incredibly similar they all were from the a wet wobbly ocean a freezing cold Greenland and a boiling hot desert complete all of them were a mixture of agoraphobic emptiness uh, claustrophobic living space with a, um, some a partner expedition partner that you had to trust with your life uh, your life to a degree depending on the tools that you'd remembered to pack and very 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 similar experiences in very different places and the spin-off from that led me on to quite a lot of the micro adventure things I did since then the realization that I'm getting basically the same experience whether I'm mid-Atlantic Arctic or the empty quarter therefore perhaps the experience isn't necessarily dependent on where I'm doing this this stuff it's what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and why I'm doing it that matters not whether I'm hot cold or <laughs> otherwise miserable it, in fact it was Greenland that you had your little epiphany wasn't it really well big epiphany well I've been yeah I mean, I've been for a few years trying to trying to combine various things in my life I was trying to become uh, the next Wilfred Thesiger slash Ranul Fiennes massive tough guy, <laughs> despite not being uh, either a tough guy or as as posh as them. <laughs> so, but that was the sort of, I was aspiring to that big expedition world. But at the same time, I was aspiring to be a good dad to young little kids and, uh, and all this, the nece necessity of just spending time at home and the incompatibility of trying to, on the one hand, live an adventurous life, but on the other hand, be a present husband and dad um, came that had been tugging me quite strongly for, uh, well, since day one, I suppose. But it was really in Greenland that I had the epiphany of thinking, this just doesn't work. I cannot do both of these roles brilliantly well. And therefore, I either compromise with both of them or I make some sort of choice. Because there was a moment in the film of The Empty Quarter where you looked like you were going to go, what on earth is this for? And and I kind of wondered if that was almost a foreshadowing of what came again in Greenland, or was it just that that, that, that point was just so low that you felt like, oh, I want to get out of here? 
Well, actually, the empty quarter was slightly after Greenland. So, oh, of um, course, I'm sorry, forgive yeah, me. Yeah, but no, that no, you're fine because um, I, I, um, the other big tangling in my mind was that I had these two halves of my life. I had Internet Al, which was me writing books, doing podcasts, showing off about myself on the internet, and then the other half of my life, which is a very private, personal person who doesn't really want to tell the rest of the world about all this whatever's no one no one in the world cares what I had for tea tonight kind of feeling um and it was only and it took me quite a long time to allow any overlap in those worlds so that yeah the empty quarter film when I had a bit of a meltdown was a I suppose a beginning of changing that and the reason I changed in the end was really I re- I came to realize that there are so many people who are desperate to have adventurous lives but also desperate to pay their mortgage and be at home with their families and that that uh and and i think that's a fairly common tug in a lot of adventurous souls and it just seemed that it was becoming well <laughs> unhelpful for me and borderline disingenuous for me to be pretending on instagram that i was this heroic explorer meanwhile i spent most of my days going out buying nappies <laughs> they do say that social media is all about showing off for strangers you know that is what i oh yeah exactly yeah and you can live a, sh- a whole number of different work- lives via social media writing and actually sorry i to jump forward a couple of years i um i walked through spain playing my violin and i made a film about this trip which is on the internet and i really like it it's a short cheerful jolly film about al the adventurer having a daft adventure and i really like it and it's true and then I wrote a book about that story, which is a far more miserable story, but it's also true. So there's two, the exact same trip told through two different mediums, both very truthfully, but in very different representations of an adventure. Back in 1991, shortly after my father died, he he loved Spain. He, he went to live in Spain, but we took my mum there. He was fascinated and had all the books about the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and in 1991, I, I cycled across Spain following the Camino, the Santiago one. Uh, and back in those days, there wasn't an English guidebook to it. N- nobody had heard of it. In fact, if you were in Belgium and you got community service, you were allowed to do the Camino instead of doing your community service. It was seen almost wow. as a punishment. And when I got to the end of it, I, I went to my, um, I flew down to my, my mum and dad's house and I was going through his library and I found that book when I walked out one midsummer morning. And I thought, you know, if only I could play the violin, this would be an absolutely brilliant walk to do. Now, I didn't have the nerve to do what you did, which was to go and actually do that walk with limited violin playing <laughs> ability, yeah. he said, being as polite as he can. <laughs> yeah. Was it the well, Muppet I, theme that you could manage? That's my speciality. That's the one tune I can now play without uh, a music stand. So uh, that's what I trot out whenever I'm asked to do a little number. <laughs> it's about 10 seconds of the Muppets. Well, I, I had exactly the same theory feeling as you when I read that book for 15 years. I thought I'd love to do that trip if only I could play the violin. But I can't play the violin playing performing karaoke dancing at weddings all of those things terrify me and i hate them and and this does sort of leads on from what we were talking about a few moments ago which was i had to start thinking differently about what adventure meant to me and if adventure could not or no longer meant going off and doing epic trips 
And if actually my epic trips had peaked in my 20s and therefore it was downhill from then on, it made sense to think differently about living adventurously. And in order to try and get back that initial, those early days feelings of the thrill and the terror and the uncertainty and the unknown of adventure that appealed to me when I set out to cycle around the world, I figured a good way to bring back the terror would be to try and uh, live from playing the violin for a month despite never having busked in public, finding it deeply embarrassing and basically being unable to play the violin. Um, it was a bit of a hunch and it was, I, I say modestly, an absolute masterstroke. It was one of the most adventurous, it was only four weeks, but one of the most adventurous experiences of my life. And all I was doing was walking what is now basically a, a, a pensioner's walking holiday type trip, um, but with the challenge of having to pay for it by playing the violin. And it turned then the adventure became not the walking and the camping and the fires and all that stuff. The adventure became the violin. So adventure doesn't have to be Wilfred Thesiger on a penance in the empty quarter desert. I have to say, I think that's a, a lovely film because you you actually do see your reluctance. You really feel for you um, because you, you 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 do look petrified. You feel a bit for the people who are listening to you, but you really feel for you because you're cringing there almost with, and, and yet it works. That that I've what I've really enjoyed watching that film been shown to an audience at a couple of events and I love sitting at the back and just watching the audience cringe with embarrassment <laughs> on my behalf as I stand up in the village square squawking away and everyone's just wincing on my behalf so yeah I, it's it I was it was a really amusing experience that it was it's was also quite a joyful thing to just have to trust the kindness and the goodness of the world and lay yourself open to a dollop of serendipity and good fortune as well but but when your business now is adventure well you're, you're a writer first and foremost uh, i i'm assuming but but when you when it's the business of adventure do you have to now keep going out and looking for that edge to give yourself something to write about at the end of the day to bring in the money yeah there's no doubt that um when you try and turn your hobby into your job it shifts things and for me it shifts things mostly in a good direction i love large amounts of the working side of adventuring um, i've actually started a new email newsletter this year called the working adventurer trying to unpick um the actual realities behind the instagram pictures of paying for life to adventure but certainly now if i'm choosing an adventure i do in my mind have to balance up a little bit of do I want to do this? Does it excite me personally? Plus, can I somehow make some story out of this that will bring in some cash, which perhaps sounds a little bit grubby, but I, I, one of the main checks and balances I have is I always say to myself, would I do this thing if nobody ever found out? And that helps me keep things vaguely in the direction of doing stuff I actually want to do and as little as possible of the performing monkey. And actually, in my def in my defence for the Spain trip, I had this was an, a trip I wanted to do very personally. I'd wanted to do it for so long, and I, a few brands talked to me about, "Please, can we sponsor you to do this trip?" And I said no to them all. And initially, I planned to just do the trip and tell no one at all because I just wanted to do it. But I then had to think, actually, this is a great story. This would be really nice to film. Um, 
So I never really actually quite intended to write a book about it, but I did go out thinking, yeah, I'm actually going to film this. But I've come over the years to really enjoy the added, for me, it adds to the adventure to be thinking about cameras and camera angles and story whilst I'm trudging through the hot sunshine as well. So most of the time it adds to the experience, I think. Yeah, I was going to say you you film this yourself. So that it does that help or does that hinder because uh, i i asked this of jenny tuff actually uh that how difficult is it to turn on the camera when you are feeling at your lowest because that's obviously when the best bits are going to be at the end of the day well that's the time to turn it on i mean i uh, rowing the atlantic ocean i planned to film that but i was so miserable and so incapacitated by seasickness that i couldn't bear to turn the camera on for the first 10 days i literally didn't turn it on and of course once i'd then recovered and got into it then all i filmed was some blue skies and dolphins and made an absolutely useless pointless waste of time film so um yeah you if you're going to do it and especially the way i did it on that trip which was with a fairly big camera a big tripod if you're going to do it you're going to do it properly and that involves horrible things like you have in, suddenly you think in your head oh it'd be a great shot if i walked across the horizon two miles away and then you think oh man now i need to set up the tripod walk two miles into the distance walk all the way back pick up my camera again um but so i think it requires being fully committed to make it worth bothering with but i i overall i really enjoy that side of things you have to have a lot of skills as an adventurer now don't you writer podcaster uh talk you've got to be able to public speak you've got there's a whole load goes with it that you know climbing the mountains and doing all the hard work that's only a bit of it yeah I, yeah it really is i mean if if you're going to try and make your money out of doing those things i mean there's there's a huge amount to be said for just going get becoming a a banker or something with a clause in your contract to give you two months off a year and you go climb Mount Everest every year. So, um, or to become a teacher and spend your summer holidays kayaking around Iceland every summer. So there's to actually choose to make the money. Hang on, you were a teacher. Yes, exactly. And that was part of my plan when I was a teacher was one of the draws to it was, Hey, I get massive holidays. I can get paid all year and then go have brilliant adventures in the summer. So, there is, yeah, to actually choose to make your living from the adventure itself, I think you have to be willing or you have to, I think ideally you have to really enjoy aspects of that. And I really enjoy writing. I enjoy the photography. I enjoy the storytelling. I enjoy the talks. Um, I enjoy trying to figure out different ways to make stories come together. So I, I enjoy all the time I spend in my shed, which actually in reality is way more than you spend up a hill as well. At that point, a link failed. It was 10.30 at night. I was using a brand new system. I was awfully embarrassed, but I got it working again with a confession. Oh, you're there. Hello again. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry about that. Don't worry. Do you know what it is? We, we, don't, is we don't like Wi-Fi in this house, and I have a timer set that switches it off at half past ten. <laughs> Time for bed, is it? Oh God, I'm so sorry. I feel right. That's all right. Okay, <laughs> that's a great thing to. No, you you need to include that in the podcast because everyone should really turn their wife off at half past ten and go to bed. Right. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll or read a book. As long as I take off that, I do actually. That's what I do. That's exactly what I. Now it says it's recording itself again automatically, so that's good. 
in your podcast, when you've gone around Yorkshire talking to people, there there is a moment where you're speaking to someone and you you confess that you have a slightly different approach to some adventurers in that you you're quite happy to give away an awful lot of your material and others aren't. I'm just wondering why you do that. In the early days when I first started writing, I was writing and shouting very much into the darkness because I had an audience of what well, zero plus my mum. So in the early days, I mostly just cared that people read what I was writing if you're writing something for an audience you want there to be one so that drove it in the early days and actually that very much continues I'd far rather a million people read my book and I made zero pounds from it um, than making a quick buck and the second reason is that I found that the more you give away the more generous you are with your information and time and knowledge and contacts in the long run, in the internet world, that comes back to help you. The internet is not a zero-sum business. So I think the more you give away, the more you reap in return. So pretty much everything I try and sell, uh, you can snoop around on my website and you'll find it all for free if you if you can be bothered to search away. Is this the way you're trying to take adventure now to the, the micro level? You're well known for your micro-adventures book, and now you have the doorstep mile and explain to me the thinking behind both of those for for people who've heard of micro adventures and perhaps don't know how the two relate okay so i i began trying to do massive adventures and i gradually realized that the stuff i was getting out of adventures i was getting pretty much the same thrills and benefits and lessons whether I was in the desert or in the ocean or in China or in um, California and therefore perhaps I could actually get these things anywhere and really adventure was much more in my mind and was more about the attitude with which I uh, approach the world so that got me thinking about do you need to go around the world to have an adventure at the same time, my own life was getting uh, more constrained. So I started to think, can I still have an adventure that is short, simple, affordable, local and, uh, and without having to disappear off months on end? So those those things led to me starting to do micro adventures, deliberately, willfully, short, simple, local adventures that hopefully still had the spirit of the big stuff. Um, and, that, and that really, uh, part of that aspect was that so many people love the idea of adventures, but not many people, for all sorts of reasons, go and row oceans or cycle across continents. So I was trying to think, how can I encourage people to start really, really small? Because it's better to do a small adventure than no adventure at all. So that was really micro-adventures. And then on my big adventures, I've always noticed that I find beginning them really difficult. I don't, I'm not some sort of big, gung-ho, heroic Wilfred Thesiger, Bear Grylls, who just goes charging off into the desert with a knife between my teeth. I mostly just think, oh, no, this is really hard. I can't do it. And I really beat myself up. But then once I set off, I, of course, love the experience. So I, I noticed how hard I found it to start things. And then I learned this Norwegian phrase, Dorstok uh, Miller, which translates as doorstep mile. And the Norwegians say that getting out of your front door and starting is the longest mile of any journey. And that phrase really resonated with me. It completely encapsulated so much that I find hard about starting big adventures. And I felt it 
it sh it represented a lot of things that other people find hard about turning big exciting ideas and daydreams into actual concrete action and that led me to writing uh, the doorstep mile book which is it's very different. It's borderline self-help. I was going to say that. It's a self-help book, isn't it? <laughs> it's entirely self-help book, which is a phrase I can't say without a little bit of vomit coming up into my throat. <laughs> I, I put I put forward the big disclaimer about um, trying to help other people, but having no clue how to sort my own life out. But yeah, it is undeniably a self-help book. And, and therefore... When I was when I've been trying to sell it online, I've been quite careful to try and say to people, make sure you read the description before you buy it because you might hate this book. It's not going to tell you how to go camping at all. It might it might help you in your life, or you might just hate it and burn it on the barbecue. And you've offered to give them the money back, haven't you? Yeah, well, I do that with all my books. Any book, you, if it's rubbish, you have your money back. But the doorstep mile is very much a marmite thing i think it'll get you either at a time in your life when you think it's wonderful or you think it's so cheesy you just want to vomit how are yeah. you coping with your i mean we, we, i think doorstep mile is about all we're supposedly allowed at the moment isn't it no i mean they haven't specified the distance but given all this awfulness that's happening at the moment how are you handling it um well i've been trying over recent years to train myself to be grateful for localness and to appreciate try and seek out the universe in my backyard, so to speak, rather than yearning for um, Patagonia. So I've been climbing a tree every month for two years, which I found to be one of the most uh, rewarding and enjoyable ways I've spent half an hour a month for a long, long time. So that's a wonderful thing I've been doing. But just recently, I've been starting to get itchy feet about just wanting to go charge around and burn off some energy. So I'm now, I've now started a a um, an every street challenge to try and run every single street all the dead ends the cul-de-sacs uh, starting from my front door going round in circles till I get as far as I'm allowed to run in my time available so I'm trying to make myself explore just a mile away from home and to see things I've never seen before every single day uh, it's a, a mindset set shift from being annoyed that I can't go for a massive bike ride into being quite excited because I've never seen what's at the end of that cul-de-sac and so far I'm really enjoying the that challenge. I think I've taken up so much of your time and I think we've come full circle. Shall we stop there? I think that's unless, unless there's anything you'd like to add. No, I don't think so. I'd encourage everyone to go climb a tree once a month and notice the season change and uh and go explore down some local cul-de-sacs and see what you find. And then do you, do, you, um, do you climb the same tree? Yes. Yeah. And that's I, that's a deliberate choice because then I really notice how the, the bluebells are coming or the wild garlic or the first leaves. So, yeah, very deliberate choice. I climb to the same point in the same tree, uh, ideally on the first Wednesday of every month. You have that in your diary? Yeah, my Google calendar goes, ding, climb a tree, and I go, woohoo, leave aside the boring conference calls and uh, podcast interviews and go climb a tree for half an hour. Hopefully that was one of the less boring interviews. It's certainly one I'll remember, and my huge thanks to Alistair Humphreys. There are links in the show notes to his YouTube channel for The Empty Quarter and Spain Films, plus links to his podcast and website. It's all there. If you've enjoyed this, please, please, please leave a review, subscribe and tell your friends and maybe consider supporting the show too. There's a link to that in the notes. 
Follow Always Another Adventure on Facebook or Twitter and share the posts about new guests and new episodes. And we'll all try to get through this awfulness together. I'm Simon Willis. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.